So I am very happy that we have James Burke with us today. Now, when I returned to Swiss, I think it must have been about 18 months ago, I was training a client of mine and I'd been gone from the U into the UK for a couple of weeks where I was studying clinical hypnosis. And then when I come back, now this client is a PhD in physics. He has a very interesting startup company. And I felt kind of embarrassed when I said to him that I'd gone to study hypnosis. And then he said, if there's one thing that I need to do, I need to introduce you to my uncle because you and him would click very, very well. And me and James got in touch with each other. We met each other in an Irish bar after a couple of drinks, uh, a good relationship formed and we're still in touch now. And I'm really happy to bring James on because you are certainly an interesting character, mate, I must say. Um, you sound you know, like my wife. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I mean, maybe it would be better if you introduce yourself, but just as a little background, you was a, you went from the corporate world as CEO to multinational companies to now being a executive coach that utilizes hypnosis and business sparring. Is that a good introduction to who you are or would you like yeah, to? Yeah, so I'm, I'm exactly. So I've been in the, the business world, been running various companies and been really heavily involved in, in business and uh, got out of corporate life. The corporate, for those who know, <clears throat> of, of you who know that it's really, can be a difficult place to be at times and uh, started executive coaching indeed. So I coached top manager. That's right. Right. And it is, hypnosis comes in, Alex, but it's not, I don't do hypnosis. I try to understand where people have issues and then we work on the issues. And at times, hypnosis makes, is, you know, is the right thing to do. Right. Because I guess all of the, there's no such thing as business problems. These are all personal problems that are manifested through into the business world. Or how do you see it? I think that that's, you know, it's all, I think that's always right, I guess. What you then have is, you know, if I, I know what it's like to be on a board. So I know when, how board people behave. So I can, I have understanding of business people when they come up with issues. So I, I you know, I can I, imagine myself being in that position. And they realize that. And I think that's just something which helps them to open up because I have the credibility being there, done that kind of thing. Right. So just for our listeners, I know you're like the most humble guy that I've met and you never, you, you hate to say who you've worked with and what you've kind of done, but just for a bit of a background for people, when you, where was you CEO? What kind of business did you run? What kind of success have you had in, in the corporate world? So I started in running a inorganic uh, company in my, my early, in my early days. And then I moved on to run uh, a company called Aloswiss in the in the valley. That's where you, you know primary metal, aluminium heavy industry. And then uh, moved on Alcan bought Aloswiss. So then I moved up uh, in the ranks there. And I was very busy. Actually, my speciality became to fix companies. So I did a lot of restructuring of companies around the world. And then had uh, leadership roles again in packaging areas. And uh, so I know how to deal with, for example, I, the, the biggest I had to deal with 140 companies. So then you need certain structures, which you need to have to put in place. 
and you, and you realize what it's like when you get further, further, further away from the action because you have such a big organization working for you. Right, absolutely, absolutely. And where do you, I mean, what kind of skills did it take you? Because I remember you saying about how you'd grown up and there were certain things that sort of you fulfilled through your corporate journey. What does it take to be someone that can be able to restructure 140 companies? I mean, that must take quite a lot of courage, I guess, as well as having a strategic mind in understanding how it works. I mean, what is that like? I think it's interesting you say that. So the 140 companies, not that I restructured 140 companies, that was an operational role where they were reporting to me and I was, uh, I was uh, doing normal business if everything is normal in business. Um, and I did do a lot of restructurings in different parts of the world. And I think what it takes is, <clears throat> at least from my perspective, a lot of people think this is a terrible thing to do, to do restructuring. But if you look at it as a gardener, you know, that you have a plant, it's, it's, like, it's, it's kind of like something living. It's an organism, which you have a, a company and the people within it. And if you don't just go there with pesticides and knock everything down, if you try to understand which part is strong, which one can you help grow further and which are parts which have come to a dead end and you have to take out. But you explain to people why you do what you're doing and they understand what you're doing. So you, you try to get people engaged in, in, uh, uh, in, in change. And I think that's part not just for business, but it's also in life. If you can come to the point, Alex, that you understand what your issue is, and if you can find peace with it, you know, if you understand what the issue is and you accept it and you don't get mad about it, you now come into a calm kind of position, which then allows you to do whatever you want to do. So I, I have a friend that, that comes in to, to do this type of stuff. And a lot of people will look at him like he's the grim re reaper when, when he walks into the place, because everyone yeah. knows, well, that means that fat's going to be trimmed and, and, you know, people are going to end up either losing their, losing their jobs, getting promoted or, you know, something, yeah. there's going to be change. Um, how did you develop this skill set? right? Like your ability to just kind of be able to diagnose an issue Right. I, I understand what's going on and say, if we plug the hole here or we do this there, how did you come across or, or actually start being able to do all this? How'd you develop it? I think I developed it with the attitude that I know that I don't know. So, okay. Now that I know that I don't know, it, it sounds like nothing, but I think it's a very important piece of knowledge, which you have to develop for yourself. Once you understand you don't know, you have to go to people who do. So if you have a company which is not going very well, there are reasons for it. And you speak with the people to understand their perception of the reason. So you don't get a full truth, which is not, you know, which is something, a difficult word anyway, but you get views on what a situation looks like. And then based on this information, you try to gather facts and then you come to a conclusion where the actual problem is. So now as these people have been participating in understanding the problem, you help them accept and understand the problem. So for example, they have too much waste. They don't produce 
you know, they don't produce the right amount of quality or they have too much costs in some area. So you go and, 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 and try to understand what the issue is. What you also do at the same time is there is an old-fashioned type of attitude to that. You know, if you have too much cost, you take people out. Well, in my view, this is a very inefficient way of looking at it. Um, the way to look at it is, imagine every person creates value. Then the more people that have, the more value you have. But in management, you sometimes ask people to do stuff which does not have value and therefore it only creates cost. So it's our role, the management role, to understand where do we now pay people to do something which gives no return to the company. And you try to take, and that's what I call waste. You try to take out waste. And that's a bit a tricky piece of work because you have to go to, into the depth and understand from the people where they have waste, help them understand how to eliminate that waste, and when you have that, indeed, you may have less hours which you need to work on. And these hours you take out. And after a while, that can mean that you take out people. But at the same time, I had three different types of savings for companies. One was eliminating waste. And that could lead to reduction of people. It, it did. Most of the time, also, also reduce the reduction of people. Sometimes waste happened because they didn't have enough people. So if you have a big, huge piece of equipment which should be running at night and you don't have an electrician, if you have to call him out of bed to drive for an hour to get there, then to try to start and fix it, it's much, much, much cheaper if you have an electrician there on the job. So you can save money by hiring people. And the third thing is by having waste in, in stuff which they, uh, which, which, which uh, in, in work, you know, they were using the too expensive material, you could do it with simpler material. So therefore you need to go and speak with the people and say, you have this material, what do you need it for? Does it need to have this? Does it need to have that? And then you find out, no, it doesn't. And then you can get to cheaper material. So... How did you get started? The, the, once, once you get a reputation to do this and you're a problem solver and you fix these things, like people, mm -hmm. you know, it, jobs beget jobs, right? It just becomes easier and word of, more, word of mouth travels. How, how did you start this at first? Because this is, this is a tough gig to say, hey, let me restructure your company. Well, I think my passion was always trying to make things better. So I was trying to understand why do we do it the way we do it? What's the reason behind it? What is the fundamental behind why we do what we're doing? And when you, when you start asking these questions, you find out that there's some very, what I would call dogmatic ways. We've always done it that way. That's the way how to do it. But there's no, you know, there's no real logic behind it. So if you then go and figure out, but that actually doesn't make sense. So, and that's, an, that's actually, I find this a, a fascinating thing. You know, and you ask me, how can you, how did you start doing that? I started doing it by doing it. And then people saw the results and people didn't get hurt by it. You know, because if you can go to a company and if you can improve a company that they eliminate waste, you automatically increase your competitiveness. If you increase your competitiveness, 
you, you don't have to go through these struggles. You don't have to. So it's real funny when, when you say <laughs> you, you just don't understand why, why people think that way. You, you literally just described sport. Every, every kind of dysfunction you could possibly have in any kind of company, sport possesses all of them 10x. And it's, you know, we've done it. This is how we've always done things. Now, what, who hires you? Does a CEO hire you? Does an owner hire you? Does the board hire you? And how do you, how do you combat, you know, if, if let's say the leaky faucet is the CEO, how do you go about doing all these things? So let me just come to the latest point. If the, if, if the issue is the CEO, so if the issue is the CEO, I know it sounds a bit simple, but you have to remove the CEO. So it's, um, and the, why, why is that? If you, if, if, for example, you realize that the, he, the CEO, for whatever reason, and that gets more into the psychological part, he can be very scared about many things, which makes him very defensive. So people come to him with proposals, and because he doesn't know what to do, he says no to everything. So he, he can't lead change. And no matter what you do, if you want to progress an organization, no matter what, you have to be leading change. And you have to help people feel comfortable with going through change because that's the only constant we have the change is happening as a, as a matter of fact in, in today's days it's getting uh, you know it's getting faster and faster and faster James, and with with the skill of understanding people and trying to you know build these strategy is this intuitive based or is this what you've learned from books or how is this how have you developed this so the way you can de the way you can develop it is number one I I, I it, you know what I do today is is coaching so I don't do the big restructurings anymore myself but I may coach or inspiring help CEOs who are in this situation to to do it in a successful way and. Um, <clears throat> Sorry, Alex, I just got uh, sidetracked. What, what was the question again? No worries at all, mate. So are these, the, the skills that you're implementing within a company, are yeah, they right. intuitively based? Is this something that you've always been good at, like reading people and under, un, trying to understand strategic change? Or is this something that you learned in a book? Or is it a combination of both? I think there's a combination of both. But I think the starting point is, I don't think you can... It may sound a bit strange, but you can't lead people through difficult times if you don't like people. You need to love people. Because if you have a feeling for that, then you know that even if somebody does something stupid, and that's what I tell, you know, when, 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 when companies complain to me and say, oh, our people are this, our people are that, our people are the other. And I say, what's the percentage of people you have in your company who come in with the intention to do something bad? What would you guess? And then after a while, we come to the point it's probably nobody or maybe one person if he's a bit pissed off about something, but actually nobody. So, how, so when you come to that conclusion, you understand people don't go and do a job and want to do it badly. So if they do do it badly, you have to understand why. And that's where the, so the, the first thing is to, to have an understanding that people don't do anything 
under normal circumstances in, in, in companies and business I'm talking about badly because they want to do it badly. When they do it, there is a reason. And the reason can be a multitude of personal reasons or external factors, but you need to understand what, what that is. The second thing is there is something called the Toyota production system. So it's lean, lean Six Sigma, and uh, which is fantastic, which I could really recommend you to have uh, a look at because I think even for sport, you could get it. Because when people tell me, ask me, what, what do you think lean is? It's actually common sense applied in a systematic way. That's it, not more, not less. And so it sounds very friendly, but it's very tough to do. It's difficult to do. So I think it's a combination of appreciating people, understand that they don't do anything bad, and then having techniques to address issues and help them address their issues. Because you know, when, when you're there, you don't do their work, they do their work. So you have to help them understand, how do I know if I do something, it's, it's, it, it's right. The Lean Six Sigma, I mean, this was one of the things that I'll never forget that you'd mentioned about with this Toyota production line. Could you shed light on that? What is that? Yeah. So there are two things. It's um, the, the word Lean is an MIT expression from a young guy from MIT who studied in, in the Toyota production system. And they didn't know how to call it, so he came up with the word. So the word is actually meaningless. It doesn't matter what you call it. It really doesn't matter. Um, and <coughs> <coughs> so what you get? Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. You have there. You have there a pillar exactly. <laughs> okay. So this is from the Toyota production system, and you can get very technical about it. But the the, the basic idea is we need to understand what our customer wants and then we need to find an efficient way to go there so everything is um aligned in in, in two ways so if you have the jidoka pillar which we see there that is more related to to the quality side and then there is the part related to the supply side but there on below on this temple, which you've been showing, there are pillars for, for, for the basis. And these pillars are the actually tough ones and the reason why people are able to make it work or not. So if you look at the, in this example here of, of the description of it, you have stability. So you need to get stability first. So I could imagine that in sports, if you know, if, if, in, in sports, um, I'll try to give you an example. You can have in a production line, um, you can have one team who works the morning shift who has significantly less waste than other shifts because they work different. Does that make any sense? Okay. So now what you do is you can say, actually, it's a pity. We don't want to live with this we would like to learn what the other guys do better. So then you can go and observe what they do and you can try to learn from them. So the first problem you now have, if you have to bring this to shift two and to shift three, 
they will have the issue of the not invented here syndrome. So it gets very quickly to change management to psychology, right? So now what you need to do is you have to find ways that they actually discover it themselves. So you see the word there, Kaizen. Kaizen Blitz is our very short projects, which you do. And you can help them. You can tell them, we need to bring the waste down. What are your ideas? And then bring in some of the ideas from the others. But they have to, and it's okay. They have to understand and develop it themselves. You have to leave so them the, the pride, you know, it's, it's understandable. Yeah. You said it's the not invented here syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a very, that's a very, very typical obstacle, you know, for, you know, to, to, to share something idea you have is fine, but the, the, the person who absorbs it has a much bigger hurt, hurdle to take than the person who says it. So now what you can try to do, you can say, okay, if I want to teach these guys to do something, how can I help them think? And that's not a trick, but help them figure out themselves. This is actually something I also helped invent. You know, I, I, have, I have a move I need to do. Some are optimal, some are suboptimal. And I'm trying to analyze now what is the optimal move. And I can, and, and you can go and look at how different people make these moves. And then you can try and pick out something for yourself. So that's step one. But the, the, the even more tricky step is now that you know what you, how you need to do it, you need to do it. And that's what we call standardize. And standardizing something which you learned is important because if you don't do that, you always fall back into the old habits. So you have to standardize it. And if you want it to standardize, and that's where European and American companies have big problems, they do not invest sufficient time to follow up on people constantly. In, you know, in industry, it's on an hourly basis, you have to follow up. And if, if me, James, I am building triangles, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it the new way. I should get feedback right away, ideally within the minute, telling me, James, why are you doing the old way? Oh, that's right, that's right. And then I'll adjust. And as long as this is coming back and back again, I get rewarded to make the change. If you just give me to make the change and I fall back and nobody corrects me, I have no win and no penalty for not doing it the way. So the plan, what we call plan, do, check, act is so critical and important. And one of the big reasons why a lot of companies are struggling to make improvements in their organizations. So, so in a situation like that, will you actually assign someone to sit there and constantly monitor and regulate? This is actually the, the job of the supervisor and the supervisor. So what, when it came, when people said lean in organizations, they said lean is without people or with fewer people. That's not true. Lean is effective. So you have the amount of people there, which is effective. So if you have a supervisor, he will pass by, let's see, we, we, we all three are in a line working. So he should pass by on a regular basis, whatever, whatever makes sense. 
So if, I, if we are in sales, I don't need somebody to pass by every five minutes. But if I'm changing from a, in production from a critical part one to a critical part two, I think the observation and, and the feedback has to happen quickly. Now, the next thing which is important is if we don't follow the standard, remember what, what, what I just mentioned before, and I think you guys agreed, it's not because we have bad intentions, because we're in a, we're in a rush, we fall back. So it's really important that the supervisor, he doesn't come and say, what the hell is this? No, he says, you're not following the standard. Anything I need to do to help you to make it work? And then often, you know, it's, no, no, I, I James, I know, I just fell back, I, I forgot, thanks for reminding me, and then I, I, I continue. So the follow-up is not necessarily um, a critic. It's just checking if we are doing what we intended to do. So in, 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 and I don't know how that would fit in sports, but what is very, what is a key thing in, 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 in lean management, if you do it right, is nice to the person. What's your problem, James? Tough on the objective, pitiless, pitiless on the objective. So we can't afford that you only have 10 triangles, we need 15. So I understand you have an issue. Let's see how we can help you get there. But there's no question if we're going to have 15 triangles or not. No question. Does that help? Your mic's off. Yes, yes, it does. Um, what it's funny you said tough to the cause, kind to the people, but tough to the cause. I was reading, I read a book on negotiations, and that was one of the first things that they were teaching in regards to negotiations. You want to be kind to people because they're, I mean, it's not their fault. It's the cause. Like, so the, every, every I, I love that. That's great. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's awesome yeah. that it transferred yeah. over to this. Yeah. 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 So if you go back and you, and you, you, you understand it's not less people don't do something because they, you know, because they have bad intentions, their mind is maybe there, maybe they're not focused. Maybe they have uh, problems at home, maybe they have, you know, there's a number of reasons for that. So they need to understand that you as their boss are on their side, but you do not give up on the objective. Yeah. So it's like a temporary micromanagement just so it yields the adaptation and then that way, okay, continue course and speed. So what you do is you don't necessarily to avoid micromanagement in most cases, when they need to make improvements, you don't tell them how to make improvements. Mm -hmm. You say, we three would have to sit together and say, we now need to make 15 triangles an hour. So how do we do that? So far we did 10. And then we learn different techniques in lean, which are simple tools to understand root and effect, cause and effect diagrams and so on. Why, what is slowing us down? So for example, we have a machine, which, which we always need to pull out something which is not coming out easy. So we say, we lose time there, we lose time there, we lose time there, we lose time there. So we then go back to our boss and say, this machine needs to work different. We need to have this. 
if we would have the table higher up that we wouldn't have to go and bend up and down, we could move things across quicker. If your table and my table come closer, I can just pass it on. Sometimes maybe there is a job on the triangle which is easier for me to do than for you or the other way around. So we balance work. So we get into a tact. So it's not that we tell you do this, you do that, you do the other. We, mm -hmm. we tell people what is the objective. Tell me how you want to do it. Tell me if you need something. So on, on that first pillar, it said stability. What did mm -hmm. it mean by stability? What, is, what does that mean? So instability is, we talked about improvements, right? So you can't build improvements on improvements on improvements on improvements. If you do that, the whole thing gets shaky. So you need to make an improvement stabilize. So people need to understand, okay, this is how I need to do this specific thing, I feel comfortable with, with it. And then they will, they will discover by themselves, actually, now that I see this way, we could make here an adjustment or here an adjustment. Then you make the improvement and you stabilize. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, we're, I, we're laughing because this is a huge thing that we always talk about. So say if, if an athlete will say, get a PB in something rather than chase another PB straight away, we will yeah. always more or less stop the session so that it can stabilize and actualize and then you can reproduce it. So that's why we're laughing because there's a lot about this that you can relate in terms of coaching people. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Our, 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 I guess our system, our whole coaching system is based off of stimulate, adapt, stimulate, adapt. And there's no yes. time for stabilization or actualization of anything. And it's, yeah. it's, but it's across these, these are universal concepts. This is why, you know, interviewing guys like you is it's so attractive to, to guy to me and Brooker, because I mean, it's the same concept throughout all different walks of life, regardless of what you're doing. Yeah. And I think what, I think, you know, that the point is because is we're dealing with homo sapiens. So if we like it or not, we have the emotional system and we have the cognitive system. And unfortunately, the emotional system is the one which dictates mm -hmm. our decision. Yeah. And we have to live with it. And if you bring in systems, which I call not human compatible, that's when I have discussions with, peop with people. If you bring in non-human compatible systems, you're going to fail. You know, no. it won't work. <laughs> so I am very, very big with logic. Um, things need to, everything has to add up and I'm very black and white with things. Yeah. And that's, that's a very big downfall to me with communication with regular people. Uh, logic is good in theory, but just horrible in reality because no one else utilizes logic. Yeah. No one, if, if someone else is black and white and I speak to them like this, we get along great. But if I'm logical and they're emotional, then it doesn't matter what I say. They're just going to continue. I'm going to speak Chinese and they're going to speak French and we're never going to speak the same language. Yeah, ever. exactly. And that's where you'll have to, you, you have to learn to speak the other language. There's no other way. Mm -hmm. You know, the, and the reason when people get emotional and, and are not logical is because what I found in business is when you have come to tough decisions, 
we have to give up this line. Then everybody agrees. And then they say, James, but we just invested 150 million in this line. So the, we just developed the logic why we need to close it. And now they come back and say, but James, we invested 150 million. From the conclusion, from the decision point of view, should you close or not close a line, the 150 million are irrelevant. Yeah. So, the, so what the point is about, if they then come up with that, they say, at the beginning, I had difficulties with this, but then I, I knew if he brings this up, it's not logical, as you would say, rightly say. However, it is his logic. Now, what I learned to do is I, I started asking him, okay, we agree that this has nothing to do with the decision, but it still bothers you. And he says, James, how am I going to explain this? So when you get there, now you can start to work on how to explain it. And then things fall back into place. So people have difficulties at times, indeed, when, you, when we speak logical, to argue logical. So they, it comes with an emotional statement. But keep in mind, I don't know any homo sapiens who reacts unlogical from their perspective. Yeah. Well, I mean, his, that, that person's perspective was... It was the $150 million investment was my idea. That's yeah, 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 exactly. And now my job's on the line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But now what you do is with, with, with exactly that case, you go and build a story. Why at that time when the decision was taken, it made absolute sense. So you help them there. It's an absolute logical thing. It was exactly the same lo logical thing to put it in place. But, you know, things changed. Life came in between changes, you know, things happen. James, what's the, what's the underlying fear that would stop that person then following through? I mean, say that they've, they've made, they're with the decision maker for the $150 million investment. What is the, what's the fear that's driving that to, to stop the change from progressing? What's the underlying cause of that? So the underlining, so let's, let's take the example for exa uh, of, of, of this 150 million. It could be, how on earth am I going to explain that to my boss? Because my boss might not listen. Or he doesn't know himself how to argue with his boss. So when he then has to go to the board. So what then is important is that you help them come up with a story by a story i don't mean not the truth i mean the truth but you come up to with with an explanation story why the original investment was done who was you come up with that and then you help them build uh, a story and a visual and it has to be in such a way that his boss's boss can use it himself when he goes upstairs so you have to help people um who are the decision makers you have to make it easy for the decision makers to understand why what you're suggesting is a good idea and that's maybe a different type of view so you you, you you're not saying this is what happened boss and you give it to him no you think 
How is he going to react to that? What is going to be his problem? How is he going to bring this upstairs? And based on that, you build a story. So you help him that, that, and that will help you at the end of the day. So now you solve all these problems. You're solving logical problems. You're solving emotional problems. You're solving, or you're, you're helping people figure these yeah. things out. Yeah. How does hypnosis come into play? Yeah. So imagine, um, you know, we, now we have this conversation, you can see my logic, you know, and, and so when, when some of my um, people who knew me from back then, when they read that I was doing hypnosis, they said, what? James? Hypnosis? You know, they, they couldn't believe it. So the reason for hypnosis is there's a lot of stuff which we, when we're speaking now, we're speaking on the cognitive level. And if you have an issue or a person has an issue and you work with them through the issue, you can tell them, for example, they treat other people badly. And they find out after a while that they understand why, because they feel insecure. So you help them to get over the insecurity and so on, which then doesn't make them afraid anymore. So they can be more, so they now know how to, how to deal with this. So they go and they start working on it because they intellectually understand why this is, why, you know, why, why this is their pattern. And then they realize I can't do it. And why can't they do it? Because their system is still scared, which is the unconscious, subconscious, but let's leave it at the unconscious for, for a moment. So now you have to go and address the unconscious. And there are, two, there are a couple of ways of doing that. If you do this in, 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 in speech therapy, you have to go what we, what we say into slow motion. And that means, so you now imagine you're, 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 you're facing somebody where you're always getting very aggressive. So imagine you're going towards the door where the other guy is behind. Can you see yourself? What do you feel now? So now you're putting your hand towards the handle. Are you getting on the handle? And so, so you have to go into slow motion. And this is, takes such a long time until you can get to the point. And that drove me nuts. Because my point is, I would like to help people in a short time, not in a long time. And um, I realized with hypnosis, I was able to go there, what, what would take, you know, five, six, seven, eight sessions. I could go there faster, more effective in one session. So that, that's the point. So if, if you ask me why hypnosis, it's faster and more effective. That's the answer. So who would you utilize hypnosis with? The people you were working with within the company? Yeah. So it, it's, um, so it, it would be, so it, believe it or not, but there are CEOs, CFOs, name it, I do hypnosis with. How because did you it's, get Sorry, yeah. James, go ahead. No, 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 no. There was the delay. Go ahead. If you can remember your train of thought. Uh, so there, there was the, um, the, 
that the, you know, when you come back to the point that people understand on the cognitive level what they would like to do and they can't do it, they come to realize, and I think this just takes it a bit, this is going to be difficult if we go into the unconscious part, digging down. It's a fascinating thing, by the way. It's fascinating. Because it's the dictate, it's the dictator of how we behave. And uh, what you do in hypnosis, what you, you, you try to have the brain take a rest, the cognitive part take a rest, and you work with the, sub, with the unconscious. And therefore you get answers which the brain will never permit. Because we have, it comes from the stomach up to the brain, and especially for children, it's, it's easy, but for grown-ups, it goes to 384 filters, you know, until something comes out of this mouth. And uh, then you, you know, what, when it comes out of the mouth, it's, it's worded in a way that you don't look bad, that it's politically correct, and so on and so forth, and it's just crap. You know, because that's not what the problem of the system is. And that's what you get in hypnosis. You can go much, 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 much more to the point. There's no defensive levels coming up. And of course, you can only do that with somebody when you have really trust, of course. James, what are some of the um, results that you've had with hypnosis? I mean, I know you've mentioned to me a couple different experiences you'd had, in particular once, uh, I believe, when the, you come across a car crash. Um, and, and other ones are that, would you share some of the, the stories that you've been able, like the effectiveness of what you've been able to do with hypnosis? Yeah. So I think there are the easier parts and the more difficult parts. So there is the easier part, for example, this is not my normal field of work, but sometimes I have clients and the clients then says, okay, James. I spoke to you about, to my wife about it, and she wants to see you. So then <clears throat> things come up, for example, of, and I think it's just a good example to which, 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 which makes it, it's a simple example that makes it more clear, of phobias, different types of phobias. And this woman had phobia of spiders. Now, when people have phobias or when they're really scared, I think it's a really good example because you can demonstrate to, to people that they understand, you know, that the spider, and I'm not talking about spiders, I'm talking about spiders, right? Small ones. You can, you, you can if you tell a person, okay, if this spider opened its mouth, how big do you think the teeth are there? You know, of course, you know, it's, there, there, there's, there's no actual physical threat from a spider. These people, if they have a real big phobia against spiders, they feel, um, they feel seeing a spider as life-threatening, life-threatening. So they can have panic attacks on that. So now what you, what you do is there is no logical level where, so first, first what you do is on the cognitive level, you, you come to an agreement with the client why the spider is actually, actually not dangerous to you. And then the next thing is to comfort the system. And in hypnosis, you can go there and you can comfort the system.
which means that when a person after such a session can have a spider walking over her hand and just absorb it, just looking at it, no more panics. That's an example. And uh, then there are other examples on, uh, on, uh, on behaviors. And that's when people have what we call somatic markers where they come into a certain situation where they behave badly. And when they have that, they have a feeling that their throat is getting tight and so on and so forth. And you use that to go back to when this originally happened. And a lot of these things happen in childhood, uh, in the childhood phase. So for example, there was a woman who didn't trust anybody in business and in business when you're in a leading position and you don't trust people, this is an issue. And it came out that she said, I couldn't even trust my mother. And we had uh, in the hypnosis, when we went back in time, it, she was in a department store. That was then the, 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 the situation that came up under hypnosis. She was in a department store. And in this department store, um, she was there with, with, with her mother and a big guy was coming towards her. And she asked her mother, help me, help me, lift me up. And her mother didn't lift her up. And so she ran down the stairs. And to her, the conclusion was, you can't trust your mother. So if you can't trust your mother, who can you trust? Nobody. So what you can do in hypnosis now, you can, you can, you can freeze the scene and say, let's just stay there. Let's put a bit more light there. What is your mother doing? What, 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 what's the situation? And she found out that her mother's arms were packed with bags. And she was speaking to her and she said, so what is she saying? And she's saying, hold on, I just have to put the bags down. But at that time, the, 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 at that time, little girl was so scared that she didn't recognize that and she was just running away, leaving her this conclusion and this, what we call trauma. And then after that, when we were able to resolve this, her, it, the, so the trust didn't come back like that, but after six months, seven months, she was able to trust certain people. Then she got good experience with that. And then she came into a situation where she was able to trust people. Yeah, it's, we all have, you know, we all have these, it's actually a learning. It's our system learns something and tries to protect ourselves. And uh, we just have to unlearn that learning. Mm -hmm. So, oh, go on, Mike. Do oh, you, go, no, no, no. Go. Oh, go. Do you think that it's important to understand where it comes from? See, I, this, is, this is where I actually, it doesn't even bother me from, to identify from where it originates. It's that's all, all that matters is that that is there, right? So if I have anxiety because I witnessed something, yeah. it doesn't matter yeah. what I witnessed. All that matters is that I'm yielding the adaptation. My, my response to this specific stimuli is anxiety. I don't even think the, the, the origin is even important. Is it? Um, yes, no. So let's go to the yes first. Yes, it's important because when this, whatever it is, it doesn't, it, it doesn't really, it is of no 
importance what happened? None. But what is important? It was perceived as life-threatening. That's what's important. And it happened at a certain stage. So if you wish, we have these little gnomes in ourselves who write these programs to protect ourselves, okay? So they wrote a program. Um, if, it, if it happens to me, and uh, the, the example I give is, you know, a guy kicks the ball and it knocks down the flowers of, of the neighbor. So the neighbor comes out with a big red face, unhappy and pissed. And the boy gets so scared. So the point is not if, if this was a ball, if he kicked in the window, or it, that doesn't matter. But what matters is that at that very specific point in time, this program got registered. So the, the system is trying to protect him. So every time he goes into a situation where the system thinks this could be dangerous, it starts stopping it. So it, it, it teaches the boy, avoid the situation, and if you can't avoid it, get aggressive. So that's the fight and flight thing. And when you, have, when, when you, when you work with, with hypnosis, you want to go there and help the boy understand that this situation wasn't as bad as it was perceived. So you try to unlearn the system. That's what you're trying to do. You unlearn the system. And therefore, you eliminate the program. But now you have to go, that's in the so-called reg, uh, uh, regression. So now you have to go back to the next time when it happened in life, the next time, the next time, the next time. So that's why something like this can take four hours. And then you eliminate all the reasons for this program. The program is gone. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yes. Um, it's, uh, you know, I, I constantly think because I have, I have young clients, I have older clients that all deal with, you know, anxiety, depression, and all these, all these things. And a lot of, a lot of it is, well, it's not so in this, it's not so much you're stuck with this forever. That's one thing that they say about anxiety. It's like, well, you have anxiety, you have anxiety forever. No, not, not true. true. Well, you don't uh, have to do with it. Yeah. yeah. It, yeah, like you can you can get rid of anxiety and yep, you can yep. mitigate the symptoms yep. significantly. Uh, so one of the one of the things that they they tend to go towards with this is the origin. And I again, I I just don't even going back. Like, hey, when you were here, you experienced this, and when you're here, you experienced this, and it, it almost doesn't even matter. To me even then because even working backwards all that matters is what's happening now how i'm feeling now and how i want to feel forward and these are the responses that we deal with the learned program the former the, the bad reps performed prior it's irrelevant because what happened happened like when we have guys that are injured we know how they got injured right but it doesn't matter how they got injured a lot of the times let's say for for like a torn acl the non-contact right it doesn't matter how they got injured with the non-contact. All that matters is what's happening right now, now that the person, you know, we're, we're rehabbing everything. What's happening right now? What are the symptoms that we're displaying at this moment? Where hmm. you tore it doesn't necessarily seem to be the issue, but it's now. How are we going to rehab you as best as you can? And when you go onto the field, what are the things that, we're, that we are currently seeing? Whereas okay. when, it happened, when it happened in the past, 
I don't know. So let, let me, I would like to pull that tooth. Um, there is something which you may have heard of, of post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, one of the reasons why this happens, to put it in a very brief and, and in, in, into, into a nutshell, is something happened which the brain couldn't deal with. So it can't make sense out of it. So as long as it can't make sense out of it, it goes in loops and loops and loops, repeats, repeats, repeats. It tries to understand, tries to learn, tries to understand, tries to learn, and it gets nowhere. Mm -hmm. What you do to resolve it is you help the people to live through the situation, not just for fun or for whatever. You want to give the brain a chance to find a logic what happened. When it gets the logic, it can let go of it. It can start digesting it. So to give you, a, I, I forgot that I said, does it matter what happened in the past or not? And I said, yes, no. Then I went to the no side first, why it's important. But let's take somebody of fear of heights. Example. So fear of heights, one of, one of the indications is what you can do if you don't want to go and eliminate the root cause of it, you can go and expose yourself to heights. And, but what you're doing actually, if we look at it technically, what you're doing, you're helping the system to unlearn. Again, you're helping the system to unlearn. So when somebody falls off the horse, go back on the horse and do it again. You want to unlearn. So if you have issues where you learn something which is bothering you, which happened, let's say, a week or two ago, this is not the same kind of trauma that I was speaking about, which happens in young age and which dictates your life, if you like it or not. Then you have to go back. If mm -hmm. something happens, you talk about sports two weeks ago, the key thing is to understand, just to understand what happened and say, this can happen. Okay, we're playing sport, this, this can happen. What can I do to mitigate? If you don't, if, if whatever you have, if you don't accept it, understand and accept it, and this doesn't have to be a, a crying session, whatever. Now, this is a very simple fact-based thing, but to, to make people feel relaxed. Feel relaxed about what happened. These things happen. Find peace with it, and then we can move on. So if their system reacts badly, that they can suddenly not do something, if that is the case, then you have to take time, and that's logic, Frank, logic you know, you're after. If when you speak with them on the cognitive level, and that's not sufficient, you have to face the part which is the program, a mini program which has been written and just accept it. Look at that happy face. <laughs> I mean, it makes one of the, one of the ways that I like to sort of try and understand because this is one of the interesting things. And I remember talking to you about this the first time we met is from the clinical side that i'd learned there was a lot of talk about is regression and stuff like this how effective is this because it's hard to measure and if you look at certain things now to do with 
typical neuroscience, they say, well, memories are a bit shady and they cannot always be the way that they are. And I understand that maybe it doesn't need to be 100% fact, but it's the way that it's perceived the memory that you're looking at. And what you was mentioning then in terms about heights and exposure therapy and the good thing with hypnosis is, is that you can put the the system into a place where it's controlled imagination. So you can basically do exposure therapy in the mind and sort of behavior rehearse it in a way that you can um, uh, already put the building blocks into place that you can increase the confidence and self-efficacy of people that I, that, that I absolutely get. Um, I mean, Mike, with, with what you were saying about say like, for example, a non-contact ACL, Okay, you get your guy, he's, his ACL is busted. The context is still important because it's like, how was it, how was it done? Was it a deceleration? Was it a, a cut? Was it, uh, uh, was it uh, you know, maybe not so much, um, how do I even go into this better? More, more, sh more light shed on it makes sense because if, is it a biomechanical issue or is it a... Um, is it a, an imbalance kind of issue or something like this that helps to encourage the treatment protocol that comes out of it. Right. Because there has to be some kind of, of level to learn from it. So I don't know to wrap back around where I went in a bit of a circle there. To me, it seems like the brain struggles to know the difference between things that are real or imagined. Just like if you have a nightmare, you can wake up and have a lot of physio physiological symptoms to the images that are going on inside of your brain. So the thing that I am very interested in with hypnosis is that if you can get people to go into the sort of the dark where they're really scared and you can go in there without getting this sort of uh, autonomic nervous system response, you can start already putting the building blocks in place that they can then face it and then overcome it also in, then, in the reality, right? And then once they've, you know, got over their fear, it shouldn't really, it shouldn't really be coming up again. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Yes. I think there are, there are, there are two things. One is, uh, to, to Mike's point, you know, it doesn't have to be, oh, you'll like that, Mike, you'll, you'll like that. Um, when I speak with people where they have, they have ideas where this issue, if it, where this issue was coming from that created this program. And when we then go in, in hypnosis, we often don't even pass these places where they said that's where the, where the issue was. Okay, we, we don't we don't even get there. So I don't think it's important. Um, and I don't think it's it's helpful to go and figure out and try to understand with a wake mind where does this come from, because we can't trust the brain. Full stop. You know. The brain is always giving us stories about what happened and it's inventing permanently. So when you, when you look at um, forensic psychology, uh, for, forensic psychology, you can see that when you interview people who have witnessed something, they will give you stories. And it's not that they have bad intentions by doing that, but their brain, they just saw something happening here, something happening there, and their brain has to build a logic between the two. That's what the brain is here for. And they will tell you the logic. They will not see what they've seen. They, they, they will tell you what their brain, brain has, has, has set up. When you speak with people about 
experiences which they had ha which they had in the past and their narrative very often has been massively corrected than than what has actually happened because the brain tries to bring it into a into a better way than we have actually than it actually happened yeah. so don't trust the brain uh, exactly so our memories are false anyway so yeah. what why even go back do are, are you know like that's that's what i understand i i remember watching this interview uh when they were talking about it might have been on netflix where they're talking about how memory works and they mm -hmm. interviewed this one woman and asked her where were you on 9 11 and she mm -hmm. told her she goes oh I, I i'll never forget it it was this this and this and then they said no actually uh your mom wasn't even working in 9 11 during this time and you completely made that up that might have been someone else's experience like yeah, yeah, oh my yeah. goodness yeah. You know, like our, our brain forgets yeah. so many different things and then we just fill in the blanks ourselves. So it's like- Exactly, and fill in the blanks. Yeah. 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 So so going so, back to those memories, it's like, well, well why even bother? They're, okay. they're skewed anyway. Okay, Mike. There is a syntax error in that statement. And it's that if you would do this awake, you would get exactly that. But okay. when you do it in hypnosis, okay. you, the, the whole thing is to get the brain out of the, out of the story. You just want to go to the real stuff and you want to unlearn. So any, any way you can help unlearn somebody who, has, who understands it but can't do it. The reason is the system is stopping it because it learned something. Then you have to unlearn it. It's actually as simple as that. You know, we don't have to make a big story about it. It's how do we unlearn? And the problem, the, the big problem which I see is the unconscious influences us and the brain, but we can't go, you know, speak back mentally. We can't think back and correct it. So if, if you, if, you know, if you take a chocolate and you form it and it looks like a really ugly dog shit and you have to put it into your mouth, you know, your whole system goes, no, 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 no. You know, it just doesn't want to do it. You know, you've seen it's chocolate, but your system says, no, 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 no. And that happens to us all the time. So we now need to convince the system, help the system to understand that so first of all we say i understand you're trying to keep me safe i understand what you're trying to do but look you see this is the chocolate you see this is what happened you see so you need to unlearn the system that it doesn't stop you just from from anything but it doesn't argue with you it doesn't say i am now going to tell you not to eat because it looks like something dangerous no it just stops you that's it so we we, we you know we have this system in ourselves which makes up and does in many ways a good job because we wouldn't be alive anymore probably to protect us from from all kinds of things but in some cases it gets very very counterproductive and in cases where it gets counterproductive that's where you have to unlearn so for example i could imagine in sports when you have an injury the system says not good shouldn't happen again so it's going to stop you to get into that environment again. So then it's, you, you have to figure out how can we help the system understand that it's still okay. 
because I learned how to deal with this, I learned how to deal with that, so I can reduce the, the, the impact dramatically, for example. Yeah. Yeah, and, and as an example of that, like pain, pain is PTSD, right? So any kind of limping, all those things associated with injuries, that's just PTSD. That's our yep. brain telling yep. us, well, yep. we don't want to yep. be in these positions. It's, it's just going to prevent it. We replicate positions that we want them to be in, in order to increase the body's awareness for that position to let them know that it's okay to be there. Mm -hmm. It's the same exact thing that you're discussing with, with the mind. We're going to get you there mentally, emotionally, and say, hey, look, listen, you were here before. It hurt, but look where we are now. It's safe, right? Mm -hmm. That makes mm -hmm. sense? Mm -hmm. That makes absolute sense. So if you have it, so I, I just tell you this from my, you know, I'm not a sportsman, but I do some, some, some fitness stuff. So when I, have, when I have torn something and I can't squat, for example, because it, it hurts then it it i can see that i you, you know you take this position where you protect yourself mm -hmm. and then it takes a lot of energy to slowly get back to do it until the system realizes okay we're okay again so that i think to your point is a typical example of unlearning mm -hmm. and it's a typical example of learning so what what we should just be aware of that some of these things have occurred very recently and they can be unlearned very quickly. Some of these things that have a lot to do with how we behave in general are is older stuff. And then we just have to go back to where the older stuff happened to unlearn. But it's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. Same thing. It's not complicated. It just, yeah, it's not complicated. And I think if you guys can help people understand that when you have anxieties, when you have difficulties, when you're treating, if you have you know, bad aspects of behaving badly and so on, if you could understand, you don't need to live with this. You don't need to. You can fix it. Because it, 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 it really hurts me to see that, you know, when, when people have headache, they go and get a pill, but they walk around emotionally with broken legs and it hurts every step they do and they do nothing about it. It's sad, actually. Absolutely. Absolutely. James, if you've still got a bit of time, I would love to shift course a little bit, mate, because... Hypnosis, as you said, is only a little part of what you do, but your speciality is more to do with business side. Now, me and Mike are both in the private sector. You know quite a lot about me and my, my, my desires and yep. my current setups and stuff like that. What do you see as being sort of the, the future of business? And say, like, for example, for you know, younger guys like us that are self-employed, our business is basically ourselves. Okay, and we have a lot of coaches that listen to this podcast. So um, with the whole COVID era that we've just gone through, a lot of guys have not been working and probably want to have a bit more time to build up their own businesses or being self-employed or in this kind of way, not working in a, in a professional setting. Where, what sort of advice would you have for, for guys like that in terms of building up 
I don't know. I don't really like the word personal brand, but in this kind of area, do you have, do you have some advice on that from your experience in business on, 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 on what people can do to, to sort of get themselves going in this way? Hmm. So what I have been, what I have been doing is, and what I still do is I, um, apart from being executive coach, I also coach startups and I do this, uh, pro bono. So I, without charging. And uh, the reason I do that is because I think it's just something which I can pay back to, to society. I've been lucky in many ways. And uh, so if I can do that, uh, you know, I think that's a good thing to do. And apart from that, I learn all the time. And it's fun. So I get what I say in my job, I get satisfaction dollars. I don't get cash. But if you can help a guy not running into a wall, that's a satisfaction that there's a value to it, you know. Um, for for business in if if you're on your own in a business i think the fundamental the fundamental things probably are most of the time around am i creating a value and if i am creating a value for somebody what is it worth because in the personal training part um, I find that it would actually be so important. It's a, a bit like coaching, you know, I've got so much benefit out of, 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 uh, of, uh, of coaching on how to do things. So I'm not a natural when it comes to, 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 to physical movement. So I, I'm really, really, really happy when people can, can, can teach me and, and tell me what to do and, and to avoid problems. So the question is, how can I, how can I position myself in a way that I can create value and that other people can see that value? So if you, if you can, that's maybe a bit abstract, but if somebody really sees what they get from it, if you can help them see what they get from it, if you can make a, a link, for example, um, this is where you, where, where you are, this is where you are now. And look, imagine with these capabilities, which you have now, this will allow you to take the next step. Then this, the, the steps which can help people to make, you can also translate that into value. So if, if they're sports people, I guess, you know, there's always almost a capital. You're, you, you can be now worth X instead of what you were uh, worth before so that they can see the value. The value for them it's not about doing something good or or not good it has to be seen by the person who receives it and if you can manage that they see it you win and if you can't manage that they see it you won't sorry i'm 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 processing that right now. Yeah. I, I like that. That can. So what, what would you say now? There's, there's guys like one, one thing that I did and one thing that Brooker's doing is we're, we're both going back to school and I just, I just finished school for acupuncture. So I improved, I, I acquired another skill. And as a result of that, I am now able to charge for another service. Mm -hmm. Uh, which makes me more valuable, mm -hmm. right? I can, I can do multiple things and I improved my value just through education. 
with with the business, what would you do once these guys, you know, if you have a gym, you have trainers, each trainer that you have um, is is kind of like a revenue stream. So the bigger you build up that trainer, the bigger the revenue stream for that trainer. And then, you know, it all it all comes cycling back in with people that are self-employed. You know, it's it's just Brooker. Or if I were to go off on my own for whatever reason, what advice would you give to them as far as how to increase their value? So, so uh, one thing that uh, college coaches have is they have to latch on to a coach. A strength conditioning coach typically has to latch on to some kind of head coach in order to get a job elsewhere. Uh, and we kind of want to stop that cycle and we want them to become self-sustaining and able to make them show their own value more so. How would you go about having an individual create value or to show value with that? So let me, um, I'm looking for an example, um, but let's take, for example, your acupuncture part. You can say, I can do acupuncture, that's one thing. If you're a carpenter, you can say, I can cut boards, you know, I can cut boards. I believe that to get to the, to the customer, if you do acupuncture or don't do acupuncture, I think is actually not relevant. What is relevant is I had pain, I don't have pain anymore. Um, I wanted to make a step in my physical development and that's what I need help for. So for example, when I talk about hypnosis, to me, hypnosis is just a toolkit. It's just one element, but what is important, they, they don't care about hypnosis or hypnosis. They just want leaders to be better people. They want to be more successful in the way they operate. They want to understand how to make people execute their business plan. How do I do that? How do I speak to people? I have teams across the whole world. How do I deal with that? So I don't speak to them about the tools. I speak to them about what they should achieve. So when I'm asked to, to give an introduction to coaching, I ask the CEO, um, what keeps you awake at night? What's your problem? And we speak about his problem. And then we, when we speak about his problem, then I go to different areas to try to understand where his issues are. And of course, in many cases, this comes down to performance of people. But I've now not said, I can coach, I can do this, that, and the other. No, I'm speaking about I'm trying to, re to, to, to help you create value or resolve a problem you have. And I think that's, to me, the key point where to, to, to access. That's my view, okay? I'm not saying that's the truth, but that's, that's my view. Right on. Well, James, thank you so much for hopping on this show. I actually have to run now. It's usually the other way around. Everyone else has to go. I, I want to ask you a million and one more questions about everything. I would love to have you back on. This, this was amazing. We, we loved this. Okay, great. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thank have you, a good James. Time. All the best. 
Take care. Cheers, Cheers. mate. Cheers. Bye-bye.